This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to pick right up where we left off this morning. January the 12th, 2007, the Washington Post wanted to do a social experiment. And so finding a willing participant, they found a musician who had a violin. And they asked him to go to a particular metro stop there in Washington and to begin playing. And so this guy right at the the entrance or just right around the, 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 the front area there of what's called LaFont Plaza... One of the busiest metro stops in Washington, D.C. Thousands of people use it daily. He started playing. And the experiment was, what will people's reaction be to hearing this music in a strange place? Time went on, and i um, not sure how much. Played some songs, and at the end of it, they, you know, they, they found about what they were expecting. People rushing on to their destinations, some more quickly than others, a few pausing for a few moments to listen, uh, others maybe just a little bit longer, a few minutes at a time. Um, and it was an experiment on perception, priorities of people. How do we perceive beauty? Do we even stop to appreciate it? And what was unknown to everybody except for one person, the last lady right before this gentleman stopped playing, she realized who it was. And she stayed there, riveted until the end, and then began to talk to this musician. His name was Joshua Bell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. One of the most renowned violin players in the world. Just a few days earlier, he was playing in a Boston concert hall and seats were a hundred bucks each. He was playing on a Stradivarius violin handcrafted in 1713. It's worth three and a half million dollars. And so they noticed that people had their own priorities. Doesn't matter how beautiful something was or the way it sounded Largely, people just kept doing what they wanted to do. I read that story and I thought, "Mm -hmm. that's exactly what pride will do. Pride will cripple a church to prevent us seeing the most beautiful. It will put us in our our own uh, system of priorities. It can cripple us by doing that. It puts us in the center of our own universe. And it causes us to miss God's design of community because we are too concerned with our deadlines, demands, sheer misplaced desire. And pride had debilitated the Corinthian church. And so the heart of our text tonight is going to deal with Paul addressing this issue of pride because 
it was sort of the wellspring that every other problem was coming from. You see, pride refuses to be confronted. That's why pride is such a dangerous thing in the life of the believer. Not only does it refuse to be confronted by someone else, and I've heard the excuses and the reasoning. Well, why are you coming to me? What about so-and-so? It wants to deflect responsibility. But pride doesn't even want to be confronted by you. That's why when we realize that it's in our lives, when we realize we have become, I don't want to use the word victim, but when we have allowed pride to take over our thoughts and our motives, when we have allowed that into our lives, it is very hard, difficult for us to repent and to find forgiveness. It's like a shark smelling blood in the water and it goes on the attack. The text tonight, I've got to go over it more briefly than what I would really like, but I'm at least going to give you the major themes that Paul is addressing. There are three of them uh, because there are three paragraphs that we're going to be reading through. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 6. Would you stand together with me? We're going to begin reading in verse 6 and we're going to finish through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world. To angels and to men. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak but you are strong. We are held in honor but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my dearly beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out the talk of these arrogant people, or excuse me, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So, Heavenly Father, there's much to digest, and our time does not permit us to uh, go through all that we would like to go through. And Father, I believe that we will see sufficiently enough 
the deadly dangers of pride, what it will do to us, and why we should resist it and flee. Why we should humbly present ourselves as servants to you and servants to one another. Father, may you help us to carefully examine ourselves, to carefully examine our church, that our minds and our focus would be on you, your desires, your will, rather than our own. May you bless the reading of this word, Lord, to all who have heard. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So sometimes you have these sermons where you just want to get angry, and I want you to feel that way if you would like to. I want us to have a righteous anger towards the concept of pride. Now, I know that in our lives, there are some things that it's okay to have pride in. I'm, I was proud of my son watching him at the Christmas concert playing a, a clarinet that he had never even touched just months before. And now he could play scales and simple Christmas carols with. Oh, I was proud of him. You've been proud of your children. You've been proud of your spouse or proud of something that has happened. And, and yes, that is totally understandable. But there's a dark side of pride. There is an avenue and a road that we can take with our pride that will resist truth. It will resist the word of God. It will resist authority in your life and in my life and in the life of this church. And that's the pride that I'm going to talk to you about tonight. And that's the pride I want us to have a righteous anger towards. I want us to, 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 to hate it even. To abhor Pride within the midst of this uh, congregation. It will tear us apart. And Paul writes that it already has. And we have already seen the trouble that this Corinthian church has gone through. And he highlights some of the reasoning behind uh, what pride has done in this text here. And I'm going to just give you three simple things to think about. First of all is this. Pride would rather criticize than to humbly serve one another. That's what pride wants. Pride wants to elevate you above everyone else. Pride wants to make sure that, that you get the last word. Pride wants to make sure that, 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 uh, that it's uh, not surrendered to anything but your desires and your will. He says, I have, in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. What things? Everything that Paul had been trying to teach this Corinthian church. He says, you need to look at what, uh, what uh, Apollos and I are doing. Mimic and model our behavior. We are not meant for you to pick and choose which ones you want to elevate. We are not here to, to, for you to choose sides and, and to pick what you want. We are here to serve you. And as we are here to serve you... We do this as your example that you would do that one and to another. Verse 7 says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? That's a very telltale verse right there because it lets them know that they're not really the owners of too much in their life and neither are we. All that we have in our walk with Jesus It's been given because we serve a good God. Because he has blessed us beyond what we deserve. And what pride will do is just to assume that what we have, we deserve because of just who we are. 
that God owes us something. Listen, God owes you nothing and he owes me nothing. What we have is simple because a loving father chose to save us by sending his son to die on a cross. And when pride sneaks into our lives, it doesn't see that. It it doesn't recognize that all that we have and all we're ever going to get has come from a loving Heavenly Father. It says that we are owners of it, and it means that we have the right to criticize rather than to serve one another. Criticism like this and and this type of pride offers criticism that sounds something like this. And and you can fill in the blanks with this because you've heard this before. Because blank is blank then I will just blank. You can fill it, fill it in because so-and-so has done so-and-so or they're not doing something that I'm just going to quit. I'll leave. I'll do my own thing. I'll vent over, you know, in public forums and And I will tell those secrets and I'll spread the rumors and I'll do all that stuff. I'll slander and I will judge. Each group in this church was tearing down the other preachers in order to build up the man that they had liked. Their motive was not at all spiritual. They were promoting division in the church by being partisan. Now, I think all of us here, I think we could all agree that in the course of us serving the Lord and the kingdom, that we won't get every single decision right. Amen? We won't. Doesn't mean we won't try our best, and it doesn't mean we will not research and look and study and and do uh, things in the most Christ-like, objective way. But that's also why it's important to serve one another. Because in service to one another, it also means that we help to point out those areas where we may be heading into danger. That's why we have ministry teams. That's why we have the leadership in the church the way that we do and have it set up the way that we do. We don't entreat every decision to one person or to just one group. We have many in our church T- uh, taking the tasks uh, of, of, of many things. Listening to one another. That we may do things in the most Christ-like manner. You see, Jesus demanded two things His church be. You know, He never said anything about what shape and design the church building ought to be. He never said anything about the instruments. He never said anything, never said anything about the color of the carpet in the church. So far as I know. He never said anything about what types of pews uh, you ought to be sitting on or how padded they ought to be. Listen, I, I, I served in prison ministry before, and those prisoners sat on steel benches, no padding, 90-degree angle, something like that, yeah, 90-degree angle, straight back. He never said anything about that kind of stuff. He never said anything about the clothes we wear. And, but if you read through the Scriptures... He said, my church will be two things. Number one, it's going to be united. It needs to be one. And you're going to be pure. Pride would prevent both of those things from happening. Second thing that pride does, pride refuses to be satisfied and content. Pride refuses to be satisfied and content. Look at verse 8. 
He says, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now, a centerpiece of this uh, uh, paragraph is right here in verse 10. I, I hope that you would mark it. When Paul writes, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. That was not a compliment. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. What is he saying here? He's giving in this paragraph a series of contrasts, basically saying this. The closer that you draw yourself to the Lord, you will find yourself in a position just like we are. But when you sacrifice the truth, when you mince your words and when you, and, and when you don't take uh, uh, certain stands on certain convictions that ought to be in the life of the church, when you refuse to do those things, when you refuse to exalt the Savior, when, when you want church to be all about you and not about the Lord, then you'll become quite popular. Now, I'm not saying that just because there are large churches and things of that nature that they have sacrificed those things to the contrary. But I will say this. It is very hard for us to willingly put ourselves last. It is very difficult for us to willingly and knowingly make ourselves the least. But Paul says this is the example. He uses a very interesting phrase here. If you look back in, in the latter part of verse, uh, or excuse me, right in the middle part of verse 9, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the, the phrase, last of all, like men sentenced to death. And that particular phrasing had a, had a very interesting concept. The Corinthian church understood what he's talking about here. And it was simply this. It was a metaphorical reference to the games in the arena that took place in ancient Rome. And at the end of the games, as they were drawing towards the end, it was the most heinous criminals that were brought out last. And that became the spectacle of the show. It's kind of like going seeing the boxing match and you have all the, the smaller named people doing their fights and then you have the big title fight there at the end. That's what Paul's talking about. The Corinthians would have understood that reading that as, as you know, the, the first audience for this letter. He says, as we've condemned to death means not only the execution of but also a reference to the humiliation that comes with execution. Because you and I both know that it wasn't just you being killed. They made a spectacle of killing, just like they did Jesus. Just like the road that he had to travel on carrying his cross. And the people spitting and the people jerking at his beard and the lashing and the beating that he took on his way to Calvary. And he continues on in verse 11. To the present hour we hunger and thirst and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and, and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless. When persecuted we endure. When slandered we entreat. We have become and still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Now what he's saying here is what we should become. It's what we should become if necessary. It's what we should be willing to become. 
that in our course and in our timeline of following Jesus, are we really willing to put ourselves least, last? Are we willing to endure the things like Paul endured and the other apostles? No. Pride says no. No, no, no. We, we are not. Pride says no. We, we cannot be satisfied even where we are. We can't even be content right where we are. We want exactly opposite. We want our comfort more than anything else. Paul, that may be fine for you, but that's not for me. It may be good for you to serve Jesus like that, Paul, but you won't find that in my lifestyle. You give me all the comforts you wish. And that's how I live. That's how some live. It means that sometimes in our decisions to follow Jesus, we may make decisions that are not, that won't rest well with other people. They won't be happy. I've lost friends and as a result of surrendering my life to ministry. Even coming to Florida did not rest well with some in my own family. And it was a battle we had to fight. Well, they had to fight it. Our decision was made. Have you ever made decisions about following Christ that didn't sit well with others? But I wonder corporately, have we as a church ever made decisions... For the sake of the glory of Jesus. Rather than the applause of men. Have we ever been willing to make those tough decisions? And say that we will choose. Not not because we want to be seen as harsh. Not because we want to be seen as unloving. To the contrary. Greater love has never been seen by the world except by the love of Jesus. And it's him that we want to follow. It is his method and is his life that we want to mimic. So yes, we will make decisions. Yes, there will be times when we will have to make a stand against some things. There will be a time when we will have to say enough is enough. And we will refuse our comfort and the pursuit of contentment. And say that we will choose righteousness instead no matter what it costs us. The last thing that pride will do to you is it will cause you to want control and power. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then. Be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, as to remind you of my ways in Christ. 
as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, and he's actually talking about certain individuals in the Corinthian church who were kind of head and shoulders above the rest of the carnality. Some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Matter of fact, they they act as if they won't ever have to face any consequence. Have you ever known people like that? But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out. Not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Because you know... Even I know as a preacher, people will say things to other people they won't say to me. That's just part of life of ministry. And I hear about it. Paul was dealing with the exact same thing. He says, I'm going to show up. You won't say to me what you've been saying to everybody else. I'm going to find out your power, though. I'm going to find out your influence. And you're going to find that it's going to be wanting. Why? Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? I mean, do you want me to come and give you a spiritual spanking? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, if it sounds like he was exhibiting some sort of authority over this church, you would be exactly correct. You see, the, 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 the Corinthian church, as a plant, Paul helped to find, uh, help found this church and helped to give birth to this church. It was a custom, as it is even today in church plants, where the, the, the sending agency or, or the sending groups, whatever that may be, will exhibit some sort of authority over that, 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 that new congregation until they get on their feet and can self-govern themselves, etc., And so Paul was still acting in that manner because that's the way that they were still acting. They needed that shepherding and and that guidance. But they wanted control and power and they were talking. Oh, they talked it up. And pride wants control and power because it cannot influence through humility and service to the Lord. It is infatuated with wanting control. It is infatuated with power. It is infatuated with influence. And it will seek it however it can. Notice that in these remaining verses that they had some who did not instruct them as they should have. That's what Paul was referring to as the guides. They didn't teach you like they should have. They didn't teach you like I did or Peter or Apollos and Timothy. They... They didn't do what they should have done. And in the life of our church today, do we like to think that we're that far removed from the church in Corinth? Do we like to think that, well, that was them, that was then, it's, this is us, and this is now? I would just submit to you that we are no better than the Corinthian church. Listen, there will never be a period of our existence, nor has there ever been a period of our existence where pride cannot come in and cripple us. 
through groups who want their little power, through groups who want to have their little influence and control rather than letting the Holy Spirit take control. And it will do all of these things. And, it, and, and, I, and I don't have to prove to you the legitimacy of any of these points in the text of this scripture. You know that pride wants control and power. You know that pride will never be content. You know what pride will do. You've seen it. You know that pride would want to criticize. You know that pride does not want to serve. It wants to elevate and exalt an individual or individuals rather than seeing the will and the work of Jesus being accomplished in the life of this church. And this sermon applies to everybody here. And this sermon also applies to the ones who aren't here. We must have a righteous hatred toward pride. To be willing to admit when we have allowed it to take over our lives, I have. I've let pride come over me. I'll let pride come over me when... When I'm trying to make decisions or researching or thinking, I think, well, my way has got to be the best way. Because I'm the pastor. It's not true. Pride can come over you in a variety of ways, too. Well, well, I'll show that church something. I'll withhold my tithe. I won't give. If they won't do what I wanted them to do, or do it how they should do it. I won't give. I won't come. I don't do that little phrase I gave you a while ago, because blank has done blank or is blank, then I will blank. That's a telltale sign that pride has gotten a hold of you. It's painful because it ignores the most beautiful gift ever given, Jesus Christ. Pride forgets that we are here to serve him. And I wonder how many of us have passed up beautiful opportunities. I wonder if this church, I'm talking about right now in 2016, we've just started. I wonder what blessings that we have forsaken because we've let pride get amongst us. I wonder what we could have done. I don't know that it's any type of real connection. I just know that I have two specific instances where I have seen pride grip a church over buildings. One was a little congregation right outside of my hometown. Lord bless this little congregation and they started packing in the pews. Preacher was just delivering the word of God faithfully and the people were responding. And then the decision came, we need to build an education building. We need to build more classrooms because our Sunday school is growing and we just need more room to expand. And you, you, you could have told people you just slapped their mama because very quickly a group rose up and said, no way, Jose. Pastor, we don't need that building. We're fine just like we are. You see what pride will do. 
Did you know that to this day, now this was in the 70s, to this day that church has never grown. Matter of fact, it's retreated. They've probably had 10 to 12 pastors since that time. Another church, this was my home church back in the uh, early 90s. Same scenario, pastor was preaching the word hard, people were getting saved. A spirit of revival and awakening had just captured our congregation. And we were growing. We had land already bought, paid for. We didn't have a penny owed to anybody. Had plenty of money in the bank, in the savings account. And our church was young. We were attracting families and children and students. And the thought came amongst our leadership, our pastor and deacons, Maybe we ought to build a, a family life center, a place where we can come and uh, expand our ability for fellowship and uh, sports and just things of that nature to offer our congregation and to offer our community more. And in a business meeting, tempers started flaring. I was there. And I remember a very um, instrumental member of that church stood up. And I quote him when he said, I will never give a dime to build a horse stable on our church property. And it killed it. That spirit just came in in that congregation and killed it. Not only the idea, but it killed that pastor's leadership because that group kept growing. There were some other decisions that kind of came on the heels of that one. That church right now is almost dead. My home church is almost dead. An attendance at one time of nearly a couple hundred, now maybe there's 20. And my point here is simply this. Pride will cause a pain in the church and a hurt in the church that is not soon recoverable. And I hope that you and I will get a fresh reminder when we approach this table in just a few minutes that we can have a bit of pride when we approach the Lord's table. When we partake of that bread representing His body and that cup representing His blood, that's what He did for us. That was his death so that we could live. Live for who? Ourselves? No. Live for the preacher? No. Live for some program or opportunity in church? No. Even that's not good enough. We live, we all live for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, may you protect our congregation and surround each and every one of us with a hedge, with a wall, a barrier 
that would hinder any amount of pride to come in our midst. Father, forgive us when our selfish motives have taken over to the point that we have excluded you and we've tarnished our reputation, our testimony, and we've put our own selfish desires and wants ahead of yours. Father, forgive us. But help us, Father, to to remember that you are the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of forgiveness. And when we come to you, humbly bowing ourselves before you and asking God for you to forgive us, you will do just that. You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is not only, I believe, a cure for pride here, but it's also a way that we can prepare our hearts for the observance of the Lord's Supper. But Father, we're going to give just a few moments before this table is prepared and before these elements are distributed. Father, we want to give just a moment or two that we can do business with you through prayer, through coming to this altar, however it may need to be. And so, Father, may you will be done during this time of response. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's take- Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org.